You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Psalm 87 is our psalm, and I hope that you have a uh, sort of a, a study guide there because I think that will help. The numbers aren't necessarily an indication of uh, an outline importance. They're just numbering the paragraphs. That way I can identify where I am quickly and people can follow. Uh, Psalm 87 and Psalm 72 is what we used in the lectionary reading. The reason Psalm 72 is used in the lectionary reading, I think, is because it speaks of kings coming to the Lord uh, from all over. And that's why Psalm 72 is used. I think Psalm 87 would also be an excellent lectionary reading to accompany the Magi. Uh, Next week, uh, Lord willing, uh, I'll work on the parables with you. I'd started the parables a while back, and we'll work on new parables in the dean's class, but I thought switching gears from the service uh, to the dean's class would be better, at least for me, uh, if I stuck with a psalm that related to the truth of Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Let's pray and then I'll read the psalm. Lord God, you are good to us. Thank you for your truth. I pray that you would guide us in an understanding that uh, is indeed so much larger than ourselves. We pray for your blessing in this word and for our reception, our perception of it. And we pause to give thanks for Andrew and while he's away, We pray for your blessing upon him and your sustaining grace and wisdom in the leadership he provides here at the Advent. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In the name of Christ, amen. Psalm 87 is a short psalm. It's a psalm that covers two main topics, the city of Zion and the citizens of Zion. And I think you'll see how easily and how closely it connects with what we've already been talking about if you were in the worship service or if you're going to the worship service. The psalm is on your text in the italicized print under the city of God and the citizens of Zion. Uh, what I will do is read it through the first these seven verses. So listen carefully. This is God's word. He has founded his city on the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are said of you, city of God. I will record Rahab, which was an ancient name for Egypt, and Babylon among those who acknowledge me. Philistia too, and Tyre along with Cush. And will say, this one was born in Zion. Indeed, Zion, it will be said, This one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples, This one was born in Zion. As they make music, they will sing, All my fountains or springs are in you. There's a mistake on your study guide. I hope you noticed it. (laughs) The italicized at the end is not foundations, but fountains. Presumably, I misspelled fountains, and my spell check made it foundations. 
Embedded in Psalm 86, the psalm preceding our psalm for today, in the center of the psalm, which is often the meaning of the psalm, is expressed in the center of a psalm, or a key thought. But in verse 9 of Psalm 86, all the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord, and they will bring glory to your name. The sons of Korah, which was a liturgical worship group of the children of Israel, they celebrate an amazing truth, a kind of burst of praise. He has founded his city on the holy mountain. And the gates of Zion represent the totality of the city. All the hustle and bustle and energy of God's city is encompassed by the metaphor, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Here's the center. And God blessed the Israelites with a physical center. That center is going to change from a place to a person. In salvation history, the priority of the place is going to be replaced by a person by God himself. Number three on your study guide, we can't pray this psalm today without hearing the Lord's great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And thus the reference to the Magi, to the Samaritan woman, to the Roman centurion, to the Syrophoenician woman. We've got sprinkled throughout the gospel narrative and an understanding through salvation history, including the law and the prophets and the wisdom literature, is this understanding that the gospel isn't contained by an ethnicity, but it rises above that. It's not contained within a nationality. It's not contained within a territory. It expands and goes beyond that, and there's so many hints and signs of that throughout God's word. Number four, the terse, staccato style of Psalm 87 lends itself to a burst of praise. Exuberance describes this good news psalm. It deserves to be sung or shouted. The gates of Zion are flung open to the world so that all may enter into the city of God and to the joy of the Lord. The inclusiveness of the kingdom is glorious and the songs of praise never cease. The city of Zion is a kind of type. A type that gives us a kind of physical metaphor for the people of God. And you're describing the people of God when you describe the city of Zion. And its sense of uh, concreteness. Substantial, uh, a substantial identity. The Apostle Paul does much the same thing in his epistle to the church at Ephesus where he uses temple and nation uh, and, uh, and church in order to describe the, the concrete kind of brick-and-mortar reality of the people of God. And Zion represents that. Number five on your uh, sheet, the psalm begins with an abrupt and emphatic statement of fact, God founded this place. The meaning and purpose of this city on the holy mountain is established in the will of God. 
The gates of Zion stand for the whole city and represent the bustling human activity that brings energy and joy to the city. The Lord's love for the gates is a metaphor for his electing love that makes this place his home and the people his people. We miss that. We don't have that kind of identity. Where we would find that identity is here in the church in the body of Christ. So often that's kind of missing because we live in such an individualistic society, uh, such a nuclear family identity. We don't have that sense of the corporate community that uh, the psalmist and the people of God experienced. And that's a deficiency that needs to be resisted. I was just this week with uh, a couple that have started a small group here at the Advent. And the husband said, although they've gone to this this church a while, the husband said, that's the first time I'm really sensing that I know people and am known. That there are people that I can pray with and pray for. Because I know them. Uh, These communities, maybe within the community of the Advent, are, are really important. Um, so that we're not alone and we're not individualistic in our orientation. As many opportunities as we can have to know people. I don't know about you, but I find it really difficult to get names here. Somebody will share with me their name and then I don't see them for another six weeks. And that's just really hard for me to keep track of people. And I, I'm apologize. I'm looking at faces right now that I have probably asked your name multitude of times, uh, and that's a sign that we don't have the kind of identity that so often the Hebrews experienced. I mean, just take for example their pilgrimages four times a year to Jerusalem, traveling for days, camping out together praying the Psalms of Ascent as they moved to Jerusalem. What kind of identity that would build among the people of God to experience that? It's hard for us to come by that. I mean, there's complex cultural issues that preclude that kind of immediacy of personal reality. In the 11 o'clock service last week in the refectory, I I made the comment that the, the, the Psalms are a kind of disruptive witness in a disoriented age. We're fragmented, we're fragile, we're very much unto ourselves and to the self, and the Psalms draw us out of that into a kind of reflection about something larger than ourselves that we would not necessarily be inclined to do. I think the Psalms are really hard work for a person to get them and to begin to appreciate them. Because just left to ourselves and left leaving them to themselves, they're words, words on the page. They really require a certain kind of discernment and study and reflection, just like so many other things. Okay, I have looked at this window Often, Lee Scott in the 7.30 service 
who's a musician, a composer, had back, hip surgery, November 26th, I think. Um, I saw him during the service, not during the message, during the service, looking at this window almost the whole time. And it's like, I thought he was just looking away. I, I thought he might be in pain. And he still is in some pain. But he began describing to me after the service this window. And Mary and Joseph on the left, uh, and he said that Joseph looked a lot older than Mary on purpose. And I said, no, I think Joseph looks like a millennial. Um, and then below that, you know, the epiphany is really in a sense, covered in that first panel. Uh, and then Jesus, the child, who grew in wisdom and sta stature and favor with God and man, consulting with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And then the transfiguration in the middle panel and the blessing that Christ gives with Moses on his left and Elijah with the raven on the right. You see, I've looked at that a lot without Lee kind of drawing my eye to what it meant. And then the three disciples, uh, humbled by the adoration of the transfiguration. And then the, the right panel, and this is what drew Lee to talking to me about this, was the kind of ill-fitting red robe on Jesus at the baptism with John the Baptist and of course the Holy Father superintending with the dove of the Spirit over him but Lee said you know, I've, I've struggled with understanding why the red robe and he said I think the red robe stands for our sin that Christ took upon himself and it's ill-fitting it kind of doesn't belong on him but it does belong on him because he paid the price for our sins. This uh, kind of understanding of the concrete, material, physical witness coming alongside our internal, personal understanding is something that the, the, the God infuses into his revelation. It's an embodied truth. Uh, so the Magi actually physically coming from a far distant place. That, and the fact that it's incarnation, not excarnation. Excarnation kind of makes a cognitive presence of biblical truth, the Bible expert kind of truth. It's not incarnated, it's excarnated. The city of Zion represents an embodied truth, a physical, concrete reality. Number six, which I'm going to now read what I've just probably tried to say, Zion, the city of David, is the place from which salvation comes. When Jesus Christ came, person replaced place. The incarnate one fulfilled and embodied everything about salvation. Whereas the apostles said, salvation is found in no one else, Peter at Pentecost, for there is no other name given to mankind by which we must be saved.
A theologian who's helped me make sense of this is Chris Wright, uh, a missiologist who for years uh, worked at the Oxford Center for Missions and then took up where John Stott left off in his ministry. And Chris Wright explains, the physical territory of Jewish Palestine is nowhere referred to with any theological significance in the New Testament. The land is a holy place. The land as a holy place has ceased to have relevance. Furthermore, the geographical land of Israel has no place in the New Testament teaching regarding the ultimate future of God's people. Instead of the holiness of place, Christianity has fundamentally substituted the holiness of the person. It has Christified holy space. And if you, I mean, you can read the whole message of Hebrews into Chris Wright's statement here. We are not looking for a reinstitution of a physical Zion in Palestine. We are seeing Zion as a type, pointing to the reality of the person of God that will be the presence, the embodied reality for us. Number seven, even before the coming of Jesus Christ, the meaning of Zion was always, has always been more spiritual than political and more universal in scope than ethnic. Salvation was not a matter of making earthly Zion the center of life. It was a matter of trusting in the Lord and being guaranteed a place in a more glorious city in his eternal kingdom. Alan Ross gave that statement. Salvation isn't a matter of making earthly Zion the center of life. It's a matter of trusting in the Lord and being guaranteed a place in a more glorious place. Number eight, Psalm 87 corresponds with the prophecy of Isaiah and the glory of Zion when all the nations will gather to recognize what God has done. And Isaiah 60, I think I used part of that in the sermon. I can't remember now if in the 7.30 or 9 o'clock. Your gates will always stand open. The children of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Although you have been forsaken and hated with no one traveling through, I will make you the everlasting pride and joy of all generations. Then you'll know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. This should be a shocking truth for us. I mean, the center of the world isn't going to revolve around uh, what it does today seem to revolve around. And this history, we're still in the middle of it. It's still coming. Number nine, the author of Hebrews also envisioned Mount Zion welcoming the people of God. You've not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, but you've come to Mount Zion, the city of God. Number ten, all the identifying qualities of Mount Zion are relationally God-centered and culminate in Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, whose sprinkled sacrificial blood is powerful to save. You've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. If you turn the page over, number 11, the Apostle John sees the holy city, 
the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And John's reference to Mount Zion echoed the Lord's promise, I've installed my king in Zion, my holy mountain. So that's the city of Zion. We look forward to the embodied, real presence of the living God centering us the way the physical Jerusalem centered the people of God. Now to the second half of the psalm, the citizens of Zion. I will record Rahab, which was an ancient name for Egypt, and Babylon among those who acknowledge me, Philistia too, and Tyre along with Cush, and will say, this one was born in Zion. Three times. This one was born in Zion. And this one was born in Zion. This one was born in Zion. There's a sense in which God gathers people from every corner of the globe. These five nations are representative of that gathering. And these five uh, all hated Israel. At one point in time, Israel was under threat from each nation named here. And yet the wonderful reality is that those who were enemies will become saved, born again. You can see where Jesus picked up the language that he used with Nicodemus. And how shocking that language would have been to Nicodemus who saw himself as an insider. Suddenly being implied that he's an outsider. And he needs to be born again in order to be a part of the kingdom of God. Which is to say, all of us come the same way. A Jew or a Gentile, outsider, insider, we all come the same way about being born again. Number 12, without hesitation or prejudice, the psalmist quotes the Lord's description of what it is, what's so glorious about Zion. That the citizens of Zion are drawn from everywhere, even Israel's enemies and rivals. The most unlikely candidates for conversion become the citizens of God's kingdom because they know and worship him. Shockingly, arch enemies and oppressors are suddenly fellow citizens with God's people, rejoicing side by side and singing their hearts out in praise of Yahweh. In the city of Zion, with the citizens of Zion, you can understand how amazing grace can be sung or glorious things of thee are spoken to John Newton hymns. Number 14, it's not just that these foreign nationalities have been accepted and assimilated into Israel. Miraculously, these Egyptians and Babylonians and Ethiopians have been reborn in the city of God. Uh, my wife and I have gone to Mongolia four times to teach new Christians at Union Bible Training Center, which is in Ulaanbaatar, it's a wonderful experience to have gone to what felt like to me the edge of the world, about as far away as you can go, and experience kind of the first church of Acts all over again. It was in the early 90s that I first went with a, an Asian friend, and uh, some of the first Christians that were coming from the outside, inside, uh, witnessing the power of the gospel among a people that had been uh, unreached, 
by that gospel for many years. That's what heaven's going to be like. And to the degree that we can make uh, that reality felt here on earth in the present, we should. Uh, You know what it's like to be among Christians of other ethnicities and backgrounds together worshiping the Lord. And I do think that's that's a taste of heaven, an experience that should be sought after. And barriers that would inhibit that should be brought down. That's the reality that we're working for, moving into. It's a reality that uh, we really do need to experience as much as possible on this side of eternity. The psalmist uses the language of birth to speak of conversion. And in so doing, anticipates the later language of being born again in the New Testament. Number 15, the only way to become the children of God is to be born of God. You know, in John 1, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of the will of a husband, but born of God. That's why one uh, New Testament scholar, Dale Bruner, says that every birth is a virgin birth. No birth is by natural means in the kingdom of God. Every conversion is a work of the Holy Spirit. Every birth is a new birth. Every birth is a virgin birth. You don't just naturally grow into the church or the kingdom of God. And that's not to cater to any sort of individualism. Instead, it speaks of the deep regard for the person. There's no mass conversions. The kingdom of God is built one person at a time. And by the Holy Spirit, not by our volition, much less our cognition. At the top of the page, in the second column, it's not difficult to imagine that Jesus had in mind Psalm 87 when he said to Nicodemus, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Undoubtedly, Nicodemus understood himself to be a solid citizen of the kingdom of God, the ultimate insider if there ever was one, a Pharisee who sat on the Jewish ruling council. But Jesus implied otherwise when he said, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. It must have been shocking to Nicodemus to realize that he had to be born of the Spirit, just like God-fearing Gentiles from far-flung nations. We all come to Christ by the power of the Spirit of God. And number 16, the meaning of Psalm 87 is played out throughout the Gospels. For Matthew, the Magi represent the unexpected but very welcome citizens of the kingdom of God, They're like Rahab, the surprising recipient of God's grace when the Israelites entered the promised land. They're like Naaman, the Syrian, trusting in God's word. They are like the Queen of Sheba, but they're bowing before one greater than Solomon. They're like the Samaritan woman in the Gospel of John, the Roman centurion in Luke's Gospel. If you were listening really closely in the 9 o'clock service, you heard me say this. 
Surely if God can raise up the children of Abraham from stones, as Jesus said, then he can extend his grace to the Eastern Magi and Mongolians and Peruvians. Number 18, and then we'll take some questions. The psalm ends on a note of joyful celebration. As they make music, they will sing, All my springs are in you. As they make music, they will sing, All my fountains are in you. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, from Psalm 46. In an arid land where water is scarce and a constant concern, there is nothing like an endless supply of fresh running water to symbolize life. And by the way, my colleague Mark Ginolette, who's on sabbatical this semester, I don't know if that's been said, but that's why he won't be teaching or preaching in the regular routine because he's on sabbatical and in Scotland. But right now, today, he's in Israel with a Beeson group. And one is impressed. I didn't get to Israel until 2015 with a group of pastors, but one is very impressed with its arid, dry, rocky nature. And thus, the picture of springs of water, uh, fountains in you. And what a beautiful picture. If born again applied to Nicodemus, the living water applied to the woman at the well in John 4. And in a way, Psalm 87 captures both John 3 and John 4 pretty well. Whoever drinks the water I give them, Jesus said to her, will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. All this to say that Psalm 87 is kind of a resounding praise of the city of Zion, the type of the presence of God, place replaced by person, and the citizens of Zion, born again with the power of the Holy Spirit, all leading to a living understanding of God. Now before questions, just note at the bottom of the page, there's a group of us that meet every Monday at 10.30 to 11.15. At, uh, you've got the address there, 2900 Cahaba Road Suite G1, the ground floor conference room, and we've been going through the Psalms. Uh, tomorrow it'll be Psalm 62. So I've spent, uh, we've spent 62 weeks taking a Psalm a week uh, some of us will not be alive by the time we get to Psalm 150, I'm afraid. Um, it's a great group of people, and the Lord is blessed. Uh, I just wanted you to know that uh, that is uh, an opportunity available. Uh, I realize that that's an awful time for people who have their regular work. Um, that's why most of us in that group are retired. I'm not retired, but most of us in the that group are retired. Now, any questions that you have on Psalm 87? And then there's one over here. Doug, does verse 8, uh, the Lord records as he registers the people, does that have anything to do with the census of seasons? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not, I didn't hear that. Does that refer to the census of Caesar when Mary, verse 8? I'm sorry, 
verse 8 in the psalm, does that refer to the census that Mary and Joseph had to report? Verse 8 in the psalm. Well, there's no verse 8. There's verse 7 is the last verse. 6. 6. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples, this one was born in Zion. Interesting thought. Yeah, because of the parallel to registering. Uh, I had not thought of that. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples, this one was born in Zion. You know, it probably has a stronger theological link to the Lamb's Book of Life and our names written in that book. Uh, That's probably what comes to my mind in terms of verse 6. But it certainly would tie in in a good reference to the Matthew, uh, to the Luke passage on Caesar requiring that registration. Good observation. Thank you. How does Rahab represent Egypt since she was from Jericho? It's, it's just, it stands for Egypt in ancient time. Why it does that? Why Rahab is understood that way, I don't know. There's no obvious reason why Rahab, from the biblical story, would be understood to stand for Egypt. So I would understand that the etymology of Rahab, the Rahab we know from Joshua, she receives her name from whatever is the reality that becomes synonymous with Egypt, rather than in any way her name being applied for Egypt. That's how, that's how I would understand it. I may be missing entirely what Chris Wright and, uh, and Mr. Ross is saying, but, and I understand when there's a new earth and a new heaven that we really won't be talking about Zion at all, but as long as I'm reading Revelation and, and even some prophecies in the Old Testament, I, I feel like uh, I'm disagreeing with those two people with regard to the importance of Israel, the, report, the importance of Jerusalem in general. Uh, and, I, and I know there's a lot of controversy about that, but I... I believe I disagree with them. Well, I'm glad you kind of raised it, pointed it out. I have colleagues that would strongly agree with you and disagree with me and Chris Wright. And it's how we interpret the fulfillment. See, the criticism that's in the scholarship today is that. The, there is a supersessionism that we've superseded the Old Testament, and uh, so all of that really isn't all that important now in the New Testament age. And that's not what I'm saying. I believe that Zion is a very powerful type of the personal, present reality of God in the future. I don't believe, though, that there is any reason for us to buy real estate in Palestine to prepare for the future. Uh, A believer once that I know, uh, when Ronald Reagan was shot, he believed that because uh, Ronald Reagan 
the letters in his name plus his middle name were 666, that the Antichrist had just been wounded. And when he heard the news of that, he got on a plane in Toronto and flew to Jerusalem to buy property because he felt the end was near. I don't think we're getting that kind of teaching from the Word. I think we're getting the teaching from the Word that place has been surpassed by person. And all that truth, all that meaning that was encompassed by the reality of Zion is now fulfilled in that future reality, which will indeed be embodied and concrete and person. But I don't think the Bible and I don't think the book of Revelation teaches us that the center is going to be that earthly Jerusalem. And we could probably go back and forth on that. But I think it's important that not all Christians, wonderful Bible-centered Christians, are agreed on the point that I've emphasized from Chris Wright. We don't worship at the temple. We worship living Christ. Right. Well, there's a lot, we could have had a Sunday school class on that. <laughs> Any other questions? One more question on Rahab. Was the Rahab of Jericho the same Rahab that's in the genealogy in Matthew 1? Yes. Right. Well, let's uh, pray together. Lord God, thanks for this time. Thank you for this morning of worship and study and understanding. Again, help us, Lord, that this may be a, an understanding of you rather than about you. We give you thanks and praise. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.